Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I am your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2% of the most popular podcasts in the world, and it's all because of my truly incredible guests, and I am so fortunate to spend time with people who are at the top of their game, and they're passionate about helping you achieve your goals in both your personal and your professional lives. My guests show up here holding nothing back. They are here to share the secrets of peak performance, and I know that you'll find their insights both inspiring and actionable. So sit back, take notes, relax, and get ready to take your life and business to the next level. And today I'm excited. I get to welcome back Karen Eber, who was here last December. And she is a well-known author, global consultant, and popular keynote speaker. She's famous for her engaging TED.com talk called The Impact of Stories. I'm going to say this again, The Impact of Stories on the Human Brain, a Vital Element for Effective Leadership. And as the CEO and, and Chief Storyteller of Eber Leadership Group, she is all about helping Fortune 500 companies create great leaders build strong teams, and foster a thriving workplace culture, all using the power of storytelling. And she's worked with some big names like General Electric, Microsoft, Kate Spade, I know Kate Spade, the U.S. Olympic Association, and prestigious schools like MIT and Stanford. And she's got an impressive career history, including roles as the head of culture, chief learning officer, and head of leadership development, and GE and Deloitte. Karen, good morning. Welcome back. I'm so glad to have you here. It's good to have you back. I'm so happy to be with you today. Listen, the last time you were here, we talked about your upcoming book, and it's going to be published very soon on October 3rd, 2023, about two, three weeks away now. The countdown is on. (laughs) I know. And congratulations. I can't wait to get my copy. You know, I've been looking. You sent me a lot of information on it. We had talked about it. And I'm going, okay, when is October? Come on, come on, come on. on. (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) I bet. So tell us a bit about the book. Tell us about what's going on with you. And just tell our audience a bit about you because I've got questions. Yeah. Well, I have this company, Eber Leadership Group, that helps companies how they're building their leaders, teams, and culture, often one story at a time. I have been in these roles on on both sides of the desk in Fortune 500 companies and as a consultant where I was trying to convince people to make investment in um, technology or on projects or to develop leaders. And there was always like one person that had the authority to say yes, but 99 people could say no and stop the project. And I found that stories were such a great way to to slow the no and to even persuade those 99 to come around and help influence the decision makers. And so I have done this TED Talk and feel like there's a piece of storytelling that, that actually still hasn't been covered yet, as amazing as it is and as much information and, and resources are out there. There is new science that tells us what's happening when we're listening to stories And I wanted to make that be relatable. So this is not a lab coat in science class. It's very everyday, relatable, understanding of 
of what's going to happen when you're dynamically using stories. But more importantly, I wanted people to understand what they then do with that, what they put into their stories to make sure that it is the perfect story every time you tell one for your audience. So the book takes you through how to find and tell your perfect stories. It grounds you in that science and then it walks you through how are you going to find ideas? How do you tailor those ideas for each audience? How do you build the basic structure and then put all the good things in that are really going to make the brain pay attention and spend some calories on your story? It goes into storytelling with data for people that have to do that in the business world. Um, how to use your body when you're telling stories, because so much of storytelling is the actual telling of the stories. It even gets into uh, avoiding manipulating and how to navigate vulnerability. And at the end of the chapters, there are these interview vignettes with different storytellers. So an executive producer of The Moth, TED Radio Hour podcast host, a physician, a video game writer, like people that tell stories in dramatically different ways. Even actually one of your former guests, Will Sacklos, who is a former creative director at Pixar. Love him. Yes. Read his wow. story. I'm getting ready to send that to a friend of mine who is an editor. Yes. He, it's his, uh, his, you could just spend days talking to him and his approaches and stories. And, and with Will in particular, it's often like one small thing that he can see and change and it changes the whole dynamic of the story. And so these interview vignette vignettes give you a sneak peek into each of these people's approaches. And it's like you're sitting next to them at a dinner party, talking to them about what they did and how they did it. They give you just a, a really fascinating way to see there's so many different ways to tell stories. And I'm glad that you're bringing this up because, as you know, I work with a lot of podcasters and I'm putting together courses and consulting for podcasters, particularly at this moment, people who don't really know how to become a highly sought after podcast guest. That part of the industry seems to be a bit ignored for some reason. And that's why I was so excited to talk to you today, because we need to tell those stories. You know, stories connect emotionally. They evoke emotions and emotional connections, and that's powerful in marketing. But unless you can show up as a podcast guest, as you do, knowing exactly what you've got to share and how to share it, you're going to fail. And I hate to see that happen because I want more people to get their voices heard. So you're here at the perfect time. Let me yes, tell well. you. We're trying, right? My goal is to make storytelling accessible because anyone can be a great storyteller. And if you're someone that has felt like, I just, I don't know how to tell good stories or I don't have anything interesting to tell. It's not that you can't tell stories. It's that no one ever showed you the steps. And so this is going to take you through. And it's not a book just for beginners. If you are new to storytelling or you're not sure where to get started, it will take you through that. But I've had a lot of very seasoned storytellers from people that tell stories on the stage to authors, um, creative writers, tell me that it's actually helped them think about their process differently. I've even had a photographer tell me that she's been thinking about the story she's telling through her images differently <laughs> because of the book. And so um, you can't be everything to everyone. So I'm not pretending to be, but I do think that if you're new, it's going to give you the steps to go through. And if you have been experimenting with storytelling in various forms, or you already tell stories, it's going to affirm what you're doing, which first of all is so helpful because sometimes we were never taught, we're just doing it. And so you're going to get that validation. Um, but it's also going to give you a few things to think about deepening. And listen, there are people who cannot tell a story. They just can't. Yeah. And 
I was talking with my friend Ken Atchity, um, story merchant. He's got the mag up now. I mean, he's a fascinating guy. If you haven't met him, I'd love to introduce you. But he talks about, because he was born here in Southwest Louisiana, not too far away from me. And he said he learned about storytelling very young from his uncles. He said one uncle, because around here you sit on the porch, you drink coffee, or in my case, tea, and you chat, you visit. You know, that's it's just a way of life around here. And he said one uncle was, people would come from, you know, two doors down. If they saw him on the porch, they were going to come. They were going to listen. But when the other uncle started talking, people just wandered off because he could not tell a story. It's teachable, isn't it? It is. It is. And it's funny what you just said sparked two things. So first the uncle and then the second is Stephanie Stuckey, if I forget it, remind me. Um, On the uncle, I have a chapter that is where can stories go wrong. And the first one is where you're telling the story that you love to tell, but not the story the audience needs to hear. And I say it's a bit like that uncle at the holiday table because it's always the uncle that's telling the same story on repeat and you don't even need to be there because he's not telling the story for you. He's telling the story for him. So I imagine oh. when people looked across the porch and saw the bad uncle, they were <laughs> like, no, we're not going because that was what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the Stephanie Stuckey piece, so Stephanie Stuckey, if you are not familiar, there is Stuckey's Corporation, which has been around for um close to 80 years is that the company that used to have the the stores along the highway yes as they called it you had to go in and buy those oasis yeah those god-awful peanut bars or whatever they were they were horrible um they are beloved so there are they're awful um, there are still stuckies there are a few stores um but they are actually um not owned by Stuckey's Corporation. So her grandfather built and established Stuckey's first as a, a nut and treat place that then expanded to these oh. roadside oasis. But then in the 80s, um, he sold much of it. And so corporations took it over and it was really badly mismanaged and run into the ground. And so in like late 2019, early 2020, Stephanie Stuckey, who was an attorney and a politician, bought the company back and it was six figures in the red. So this is very much a wanting to preserve her family's business and trying to figure out what to do. At the point she bought it back, they did not own any stores. They had their online capacity for their baked goods and their treats and all of the things that were fascinating. And Stephanie has turned that company around in these three years to be 13 million positive from 600,000 to the negative, and it is all online. It's not physical stores, although they do, they now are placing products in stores. And so she's one of the interview vignettes in the book. And it's so just fascinating listening because she really did this one story at a time, tapping into nostalgia for these road trips that people have been on, visiting Stuckey's and and helping people reconnect with this brand that they may have known as a, a child or maybe drove past as a on a family vacation. And she talks about how, <clears throat> excuse me, how she learned storytelling on the front porch, that she came from a good old Southern family. And on Sundays after church, you sat on, on the porch with your tea and you sat there exchanging stories. And that's where she got her start. And I used to love, I used to travel quite a bit across the United States. The first time I went from California to Texas, I didn't realize you had to drive three days to get out of Texas. That yeah. was a 
opener for me. But Stuckies were everywhere, and it was mandatory that you stopped at a Stuckies. Now those bars, those I don't like sugar or sweets or gooey foods. So those, I tried one for about half a second, and I was like, okay, I'm done. But I love we'll not for you. There, there are many no. that are routed for. Those I know, I know. It's just me. I don't like sugar, so don't take that yep. any other way. Other, I just don't like sugar. But you know, they had the little toys, little wooden toys on the table. It was really, I guess, Bucky's now in Texas is about as close as you're going to get to something yeah, like. Yeah, there there are still some Stucky stores that that are, are very much like you know, but it is similar to Bucky's, as she would say. Uh, there's always the the tchotchkes of the shells that are right. sculpted into fine accoutrements for your home, <laughs> and you know, plates with who knows what on them. And yeah, I mean, it was it's all very tacky stuff that you I loved it yes, I loved treasures that you were hunting yeah in fact now that we're talking about this and I hadn't thought about a Stuckey's in forever but I know I've still got some of those tchotchkes somewhere probably in the attic I have to go find those they That's still sell my alligator. yeah they still sell alligator heads and all of those um yeah there's a market and what she found is that she could tell what the, what made her buy back Stuckey's apart from not wanting to see this family business be destroyed was throughout her life as soon as people heard her name they would light up and say are you uh-huh. affiliated with Stuckey's and so people were telling her these stories so when she took over she started telling the stories and at a time during the pandemic when people were at home, they started paying attention and and road trips became a positive way for people to actually travel and do stuff. And so um, it's a really interesting look at how she has completely rebuilt a business by leaning in, <clears throat> excuse me, by leaning into stories. And when you said her name, I instantly thought Stuckey's. It's not an, you know, common name. Right. That, that name is kind of ingrained into American history at this point. Mm-hmm. Good for her. Interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. So let's talk, let's go back to the science of storytelling. So I think what you're, you're explaining here, I think, cause I got stuck on Stuckey's. <laughs> I need to go up and it happens, it happens. into the attic, but one of the questions that you have or I have for you is understanding cognitive processes helps craft engaging narratives. What does that mean? Well, a few things are happening in the brain that you want to be able to lean into when you're telling a story. And and like the most simplest way, your brain's number one goal is to keep you alive, right? It wants you to do everything the exact same way that you did yesterday because it worked, you lived. And if you do anything different or new, then that's going to force the brain to spend more calories. And so think of the brain like this really stingy banker that's miserly because the brain wants to constantly be conserving calories. It uses 20% of the body's calories, the most of any organ. And it's using those calories, not just to keep you alive, but to make predictions for things like how do you step, like how do you set your foot when you're going downstairs? So your brain is always looking for these moments of where can it conserve calories because it never wants to go bankrupt. If your brain goes bankrupt of calories, that's really bad, you're not alive. So it uses these moments where it feels like this is an important, this is a good chance for us to kind of drift off and reset and just kind of shift into a lower mode, which is what happens when we start watching a movie and we drift off or 
we can't, you know, book isn't holding our interest or in a meeting and (laughs) your, your mind starts making your grocery list. This is normal. (laughs) Our brains are not intended to be fully focused for eight plus 10 hours a day, paying attention nonstop. It's got to ebb and flow because that's, it's key to our survival. But what that means when you're telling a story is that this is probably what the bad uncle was doing. And I've, I've deemed him the bad uncle versus the good uncle. He's the storyteller. Bless his heart. Yes. It's As we say, thing. Yes. Um, if you aren't making the brain spend calories by putting in like really specific details or things that capture the person's attention or um, unexpected events, or even the way you're building the tension in the story, the brain might just say, you know what, we're bored. This is a moment for us to just save some calories. And so just by thinking the brain is lazy, how do I make sure it's spending calories? It can help you be more intentional about not only what you're putting in your stories, but how you're telling it. And so there's so many other things that you can do, but a lot of this is just recognizing the way that our minds work and how we're going to filter information and how do you leverage that and lean into that so that the person that is listening or reading the story is really captivated by it. I'm fascinated by what you're saying about the brain and you know, that it, it burns calories. I didn't know that for the longest kind of time. And when I figured that out, I finally realized while I was, you know, why I stand up and I'll go, okay. And I immediately stop and I start multitasking in my head. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to do this, blah, 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 laundry, dishes, whatever it's going to be. And I multitask it out in my head before I take that first step. Mm. It's annoying, by the way. Mm-hmm. It really is. <laughs> But I do it all the time. I stand up and I go, okay, hang on, Denise, let's, let's map this out. Well, and some of that is your brain always wants to be responding and not reacting. So responding is where it's making a prediction or an assumption based on your knowledge and experiences. So as you're taking information through your senses, it gets stamped with emotions and stored in your long-term memory. So if you take a photo on your phone and you swipe up, it's stamped with the date, location, f-stop, the how many megabytes the photo is. Like all that stuff is immediately stored on the photo without you doing anything. Something similar happens when we're taking information through our senses. As we're having experiences, our brain stamps them with emotion and files them in our long-term memory. And so when we are moving through the day or we're making decisions or we're having different encounters, our brain is going through that library of files, that library of experiences to say, what have we done? What do we know that's familiar to this? Like, have we done this before? Do we know what this is? Is it related to something we know? Is it is it close enough that we can use insights from this to assume and make predictions? Because the faster your brain is making these predictions and assumptions, the faster it can conserve calories because it's already decided what's going to happen. When your brain has to react because it has nothing to draw upon or whatever it predicted was wrong, it's now having to spend extra calories because what we tried didn't work. And now, oh gosh, we're going to have to figure out something different and this is unexpected and we usually have some adrenaline and cortisol going. And so it's extra calorie spend that your brain doesn't want. So it's always in the business of trying to be on the front foot, making these predictions and assumptions and not on the back foot. So some of what's happening when you're rehearsing is your brain really like working through, all right, let's figure this out before we jump into it and waste a lot of calories that maybe we don't need to do. 
but I want to burn calories. <laughs> we you all. do, but you want you want the rest of your body to do that. Maybe not your brain uh-huh. like that. Yeah. Darn it, because <laughs> my brain is very busy. I suspect it's burning way more calories than is actually healthy for me. So what happens when what happens to our brains since we're talking about our brains when we listen to information versus stories? I can tell you what happens to mine. I get bored instantly. Yeah, it's because not as much surface area is engaged. It's almost a real estate problem. So as you're listening to information, this could be, you know, you're in a meeting, you were in a lecture in school, um, you're reading a bunch of facts. It doesn't have to even be listening. There's this walnut sized part of your brain on the side of your head that's engaged called Wernicke's area. And this is just pure language comprehension where you are um, reading or listening to words and they are translated into meaning. Your brain sees it and says, I know what that is. And you have comprehension or it's a word you don't know. And your brain says, I don't know what that is. And it's all happening very quickly, right? Milliseconds at a time. But all that's engaged is this walnut sized part of your brain. And you're either getting comprehension or you're not. You're not engaging with what's being said in any way. You're not committing it to memory. It's just like a pass through, almost like a, a strainer where you're straining stuff through, right? The the words are passing through the strainer and those that you understand go through and those that you don't just get caught. So that's brilliant. Yeah. But when you're telling a story, if I start talking about walking on the beach and the the waves are crashing on shore, almost like a cymbal crash, it's so loud and and you can feel the wind brushing across your cheeks and and almost taste the salty air on your lips. Now your brain is engaged much more dynamically. We go from this walnut size to almost your entire brain. You know, we love to think that our, we're right brain or left brain or very specific parts of our brain serve certain functions, but that's actually not true. Um, most neurons are capable of, of detecting and deciphering multiple senses. So you are dynamically starting to engage different parts of the brain when you are talking about events more dynamically than just comprehending words. So from a real estate perspective alone, you are engaging more surface area. And of course, as you start engaging senses and emotions, that's when that they are going to be stamped with emotions and stored with your long-term memory. So even if you're not telling a story, but you work in a really specific phrase. So this wasn't specific enough, but we started talking about the bad uncle. If we gave him a nickname, like the bad story, the front porch, bad story, uncle, or whatever, even more specific with the handlebar mustache. (laughs) Right now you're giving this really specific detail that the listener didn't expect to hear. And that's going to make it be more memorable because you're now, as soon as I said, handlebar mustache, you probably pictured one. And yes, and so this is part of the storytelling hack of you're removing the cognitive load by putting these fully formed images and ideas in the person's brain. And so you're now not just helping share information, you're dynamically building an understanding. And that is, you know, best done through a story, but even including a, a descriptive phrase or a metaphor or a simile can do that and start to make sure the brain is spending calories and paying attention. Well, that makes sense. And Ken is going to clobber me for identifying one of his uncles as a bad uncle. He was a lovely uncle. He was a bad storyteller. 
He made it into several books. That's how bad he was. Well, in fairness, I deemed him the bad uncle. I'll, I'll okay, correct that to okay. be the bad storytelling uncle. I'll talk you. I'll get me off the hook. But we're talking, I'm, I've got so many questions. I can't believe how many questions I've got. So when we're talking about basically data-driven storytelling, which is, I think, what we've been talking about, because I didn't give you enough data when I was describing this, Uncle, but you've filled it out for me. How how do stories make data meaningfully meaningful on the other side? Because you've got data that nobody wants to hear about. It's boring, it's dry, it's dull, but give us a story. Yeah, it's not any different in terms of what's happening in the brain. The steps you take are just slightly different, but it's still information that your brain wants to engage with. So if you're just going to be putting up a slide that looks really simple, um, I've done this where I'll have a simple bar chart of university students who are required to complete um, four papers in a semester. And with one month to go, there were uh, 30 people who had completed all four and 300 people who hadn't started any papers. And so you have this very simple bar chart that shows how many completed, how many didn't. And you put this up and what what would be your assumption for why people didn't complete the papers with one month to go? They didn't have sufficient data to know what they were supposed to be doing. I sure. Yeah, it could be that. It could be that... Um, they had a class conflict and or or like a full class load that they were Uh navigating and so they were still you know they they hadn't forgotten it they just hadn't gotten to it and maybe prioritized other work or balancing work and and um and jobs or they Um, procrastinated yeah what happens most often if i put up that image is everybody jumps to well they're procrastinating and the reason we do this is based on our own knowledge and experiences But what happens is we start to unpack it is that there were actually several different reasons why students hadn't completed the papers. And some of it was they didn't have the information. Some didn't know they were supposed to complete four papers. Some were trying to balance work and jobs and had other, they were being really selective about when they wrote the papers and how they wrote them. And so you start to see this set of data that looked like it was going to be so simple and clear and speak for itself doesn't because we're each gonna make these assumptions that are so dramatically different. And if you're not taking people through the story of the data, then you're not having a conversation about the same thing because your assumptions are gonna be different from mine. It's just like if I put up an ink blot and asked you what you saw in it, you might say, you know, I see a mouse and someone else might say, I see a skeleton and, and someone else might say, I see a butterfly. We're each going to see different things because of our experiences. So it's so important to tell the story of the data to make sure everybody is having the same conversation and at the same starting point. And what you want to do is either um, tell the story of the data. And as you dig into data, it's about people, projects, like there's always something there to tell or you tell a parallel story. So a story about a different topic, but has the same takeaways for what you're wanting to do. So I was working with a head of data analytics that had a lot of customer satisfaction data for the company and the leadership team never wanted to look at the customer satisfaction data. 
they felt like customers didn't know what they needed and they, the data just was meaningless and they uh. never would pay attention to it. So we worked on a story about this cruise ship that customers had a miserable experience on and um, it, it was a, a very, it's a rather lengthy story, so I'm skipping over it. But in this this cruise ship, people had just a terrible customer experience. It was under construction. People were getting sick. It was a vacation you never would have booked had you known. And so we told this story that was completely different, but the takeaway connected to the takeaway that he wanted, which was that you can't underestimate the customer's experience. You can't dismiss it it's there and it's important and it's meaningful. And so some of what you have to do is work through what is it that you're trying to do with the data? Are you monitoring? Are you making a decision? Are you discussing? And then is it best to tell a story about the data where you're taking people through what you set out to learn and what you are learning, what was unexpected? Or is it easier to tell a story about a different topic that's gonna reinforce the same takeaways and maybe make people be less defensive about the data? I have to know. Did he start watching the data? This particular group, they actually, the story was so cringeworthy. Um, it, there's a, a there's so many difficult stories on cruise ships of vacations gone wrong, but this was a particularly offensive one um, where more than like 35% of the cruise ship was under construction and people were getting sick and it was just a miserable experience. And the audience was, you know, getting offended by what they heard. Like, that's crazy. You can't treat people like that. And then he was able to connect it to, but we're treating our customers like that. And you can't do that. This is why our customer satisfaction data is the way it is. So it did create the shift where they started to have a different type of discussion and be more open to it. I, I'm really puzzled as to why somebody would not at any level at any company understand that there's a difference between customer service and customer experience. The customers are who pays your bills. I think they need to be heard. Yeah, it's a interesting, um, sometimes blind sight. You know, there's there are leaders that believe that customers don't know what they want. So Steve Jobs was one of those, right? There was no, in his mind, there was no customer that was going to say, I need an iPhone. He had a vision and he felt like, I don't need to ask them. I, I have the vision, they don't. I, I think he even used the overused joke about, you know, if Henry Ford asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster for horses, not a car. Right. So there is often that belief of, you know, yes, customers buy our products and services, but they're not the innovators. We are. And so we see what's coming. We're spending our days doing this. We're deeper into this and they don't know. That is often very common. And so this is where storytelling with data can be so helpful because um, there may be some of that that's true, but where's the point where it's not true? How do you make sure you're not dismissing all of the data? And most often when there is a dismissal of the data, a debate about the quality of the data or a decision to be made, it's usually because people aren't connecting with it because you haven't taken them through the story of the data. The benefit of telling the story of data is that you get everyone to the same starting point for a discussion. Now, people may disagree, they may have different ideas, but you're able to start from the same place versus the example about the university students in the paper, if we didn't tell the story of the data, we would be having three different discussions because maybe you're talking about they're procrastinating and I'm talking about 
they didn't know they needed to do it. And someone else is talking about something else. And you can't make a decision when people are looking at it three different ways. Well, that makes sense. And listen, when I was in school and I was faced with something like that, I'll be honest with you, I procrastinated. Yeah. I always got it done, but I procrastinated. But that's going to influence your experiences, right? Because you're seeing the world through the experiences that are stored there in your brain. Now, there might be a single parent that is working two jobs that is fitting in schoolwork in different ways, and they have time budgeted over the next couple of weekends to do it, and they're going to see it different. This is the challenge, though, if we're not bringing meaning to it, because we risk different assumptions being made and not realizing that we each have them. That is fascinating. So... At some point, I know in our pre-interview, and or maybe it was even in the last actual uh, podcast that we did, but you said something about avoiding sharing personal information in your stories. What does that what mean? What I said is personal doesn't mean private. So there's uh, this concern, I think, particularly in the business world where people get nervous of, you know, I know I should tell stories, but I don't want to share personal details about my family or, um, you know, everyone has a different barrier of what is private to them. And so every story is personal. Storytelling is always personal. Even if you're telling someone else's story, it's personal because you are bringing your perspective. There's a reason that you are telling it and that's going to be different than someone else's. So you want it to be personal, but personal doesn't mean that you're sharing private information or that you're revealing things that you don't want to reveal. Each person chooses what that is, um, but you still want to make sure that you're bringing your perspective to the story. And that makes sense. And I'm always telling people, as you know, I'm a web developer and I consult with a lot of people about their digital real estate, so to speak. And I am frequently cautioning people about, you know, putting really personal stuff out there on the web. For instance, I hate to see pictures of small children in bikinis on the beach. You know where those pictures are going to wind up? You can't get them off. They're yeah, the dark web is the scary place, right? And that's... So there's personal and there's personal ball. And I, I really wish people would... Find that balance. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the yeah, other web scares me, but small children on, and I'm always saying, God, take them down to us. It's too late. You know where they're gone. I mean, there are horror stories about people finding their their babies on sites that should never exist. But I'm I'm getting off track here. So, how do you avoid including too much detail in your stories? Because you want to be persuasive, right? Yeah. You want to the, give people just enough to go, ooh, tell me more. The best way is to not back, back yourself up against a deadline. So the, the higher the stakes, the more time you want to give yourself. So if you and I are chatting, I can tell a story on the fly. And as long as I'm working through some major pieces of putting a basic structure in place and you know putting in some specific details that make your brain spend calories, okay if there's a few extra pieces in there you're forgiving and this is you know it's not meant to be a very polished story this is just a fun interaction but if you're going to be giving a presentation or maybe you're giving a toast or a eulogy or or you are going to be guest appearing you know giving a guest appearance on a podcast you do want to be thoughtful and so the best thing is you want to give yourself time to to put your structure in place, put the details in place, and then you want to walk away from it and come back because 
that break, our brain will be working on it in the background and we'll come back with a fresh perspective and we'll be able to ask ourselves, hold on. <coughs> Very dramatic pause for a cough. Um, I'm, I've been muting for the same reason. I'm in the deep South. We have all kinds of stuff in the air. I cough a lot. Most definitely. Um, when you come back to your story, you're going to be able to go through each piece of it and ask yourself, does this earn its place? Does this move the story forward by including major plot points? Does this help us understand and make characters relatable? So they don't have to be likable, but we want to know why they're doing what they're doing. We want to be able to, to have that um, connection with that. You want to make sure that the pieces are engaging the brain. And so when you step away and you come back and you ask yourself, is this earning its place? You can be much more discerning about what is really moving the story forward. And what is something that I, if I cut it, it doesn't lose anything. And editing is really the key to making sure your stories don't have too many pieces in it. The more you do this, the more you'll get a little bit of a sense when you're telling them on the fly what's going to work and what isn't. But the best thing is give yourself enough time that you can step away, even if it's stepping away for 20 minutes, um, that will give you that perspective and allow for you to make sure it is earning its place. Perfect. You and I are going to talk about podcasting again at some point. I can tell you now I've got more questions. In fact, I may have to get you to come back after the book is out and I've got it in my hands, but we can talk about that down the road. But let's talk now about how you use your body and your presence when telling stories. Let's say you're on stage. Yeah, the stories, you know, developing them for the written page is different than when you're telling them live because there is... Um, there are gestures and pause and cadence and pitch and inflection that all become characters in the story. And some of that comes through on the page with white space, lengths of sentences. You create some of that same feeling, but when you're telling it live, you are the one representing that. And I like to think of the graphic facilitators. There's people that can draw images real time to capture the summary of a meeting or a talk. You know, they might draw a light bulb for an idea or um, a brain for thinking or a barbell for fitness or wellness or something. And they're not making up the images as they go. It's not like they're listening to the person speak and they're thinking, what can I draw that represents that? They come in with a vocabulary of images. They know that if it's idea, they're going to draw a light bulb with three dashes above it. And if it is thinking it's going to be a brain and, and if it is, you know, wellness or whatever, it's going to be a barbell. They already have this vocabulary of what they're going to do. And you want to do something similar when you're telling your stories, you want to have a vocabulary of gestures. So I speak a lot about storytelling. I speak a lot about um, leadership and, and using science is a way for people to understand what's happening and then what to do with it. So I have different gestures that I'm going to use when I'm talking about the brain, when I am doing, um, you know, talking about stories. The opening of my TED talk is a story about a woman who drops her phone down an elevator shaft. And you see me step forward as though I'm stepping into an elevator. You see me reach and push a pretend button just like she did. I have my hand make the gesture of the phone falling 
I talk about the inspection certificate in the elevator and I hold my hand up to the side where you would see the inspection certificate. And so you're not only hearing the story, you're getting these little visual pieces that are also reinforcing that in the brain. It is helping your experience of that. So a big part of it is thinking through what are you speaking about and how can you personify that with gestures? That makes sense. One of my very favorite Southern comedians is Jeannie Roberts and she passed away about a year ago. She's six foot two, funniest woman on the planet. And the first time I came across her, she was talking about sending her husband left brain to the grocery store. And it's one of the funniest things you'll ever see, but I'll never forget watching this woman. She was up there on the stage, I think in a blue dress with a microphone that was it and she walked out of the kitchen and then she walked back mm-hmm. in the kitchen and she was thumping down bags of flour it was hysterical i'll never forget it because her body was there telling the story the story all by itself was the funniest thing i think i've ever heard but i know exactly what you're talking about and i have to tell you i never even thought about you know when i'm watching people i'm not really taking in that they're doing this deliberately they're doing this as part of the story i'm just enjoying the ride And what it's doing is it's actually engaging more of your brain because now your brain is visualizing it alongside. Comedians are such masters of this because they're not acting out every word, but they're going to pick a very specific phrase or a very specific word where they do something and it pulls you in and you don't even notice it. It's really helpful to just, comedians are masters of storytelling and so fun to watch to see how they're constructing it and how they're putting in suspense and unexpected events. But then- the physical aspect of it, the cadence and the timing and the gestures all play a role. They do. So Karen, what are the most common mistakes that you see people making in storytelling? And we've talked a little bit about overloading with unnecessary details. Yeah. And the first one we, we did also talk about the, the bad storytelling uncle, um, where you're telling those stories. (laughs) I know you're telling the greatest hits, right? So these are the stories that you love, but you're not doing the work to connect them to the audience. And, And the goal, anytime you're telling a story is to have your story start with your audience. You know, what is it that you want them to feel? What is it that you want them to experience? Or is there something you want them to think or do different? Because if you're just telling the story you love to tell on repeat, you're telling it for you. And that doesn't mean you're connecting it. Now, you might be telling the story you love to tell, but taking a few moments to really think about what is it that I want this group to take away from with this makes you make sure you're you're connecting them in better. So biggest mistake is not starting with the audience. Even when you know the idea you want to share, it always starts with the audience. Um, the the next one is usually structure. And it, it looks a little something like this. Um, you know, I was going to go meet a friend last week for lunch on Tuesday and I was running late and actually maybe it was Monday. Must've been Monday because I overslept and the weekend was you know, a weekend. And um, I'm, anyhow, maybe it was Tuesday. Now, as the listener, you're just waiting for the story to start and you probably already tuned out because yeah, I'm already I gone. Yeah. yeah, I don't care what day of the week it is. I don't care what you're wearing. I, so what happens in these moments is we're trying to remember details because we want to get back into the feeling 
of the experience and we want to tell it so accurately. And so in our minds, we're really trying to grapple with like, when was it? And what did that feel like? So I can really tell it, but none of that really matters for the audience. We get stuck on things that aren't relevant. And so you always want to start with a basic structure of, you know, what is the context for your story? What's the the setting and why should the audience care? What's the conflict, the point where there's tension that has to be resolved? What's the outcome? What happens as a result of the conflict? And what's the takeaway? When you start with that structure, you're not going to tell just, you know, those few sentences, but it's going to organize your story and it's going to organize your thinking. So it's going to make it easier for you to tell the story and it's going to make it easier for the audience to hear. If you just jump right in and there's no structure, you're going to get hung up trying to remember details that don't matter and you're going to lose your audience. Yeah. And I can see that happen. In fact, I heard myself disconnecting when you, and I knew what you were doing. I knew it. You know, I wasn't taken off guard. Your brain is lazy. My brain just said, I'm out of here. Go back. That's, I have to listen. Go back. But yeah, I I can see how that would very, very quickly happen. One of the things I wanted to ask you too, because I've been reading, um, you know, the book synopsis, if you will. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you, you need to, I'm saying it, make sure that your stories are persuasive and not manipulative. And listen, we're all in marketing. We're all in sales. Doesn't matter if we're in actual sales, we're selling something right now. I'm selling you this podcast. You know, I want you to buy her book. You know, I'm selling. That's just the way it is. We all sell. Watch a three-year-old. You cannot not get sold by a three-year-old. It's just (laughs) not going to happen. So, but these days, I don't know about you, but I mean, honestly, Karen, I can tell when I'm being manipulated. It's that used car salesman icky feelings like no, no, and no. But I have to say, I don't think that many people understand that they're being manipulative, but they come across that way. How do they avoid that? The first clue is what you said of we can usually sniff out someone that's being manipulative. And the moment we do, our brain says, get out of here, go drift off. This is not worth our time. You no longer trust the person if you did to begin with. And you view everything they say through this lens of like, whatever, I don't believe you. Manipulation happens when we are intentionally withholding information. So just because you're sharing a story or you're communicating doesn't mean you're manipulating. There's a continuum of persuasion to manipulation. And when you want some outcome, which is what why we're telling these stories, when you want your audience to know, think, feel, or do something after, that is not manipulative. Where it becomes manipulative is when you're intentionally withholding information and you're concocting things in a way that is um, really trying to manipulate a, a deceitful outcome. And so we you know, probably have all experienced uh, maybe a politician or a journalist or someone that we feel has done that. And you feel that what is being withheld or what is this propaganda that I'm being given? What is most important is just to be transparent about what you're communicating and why. I've been asked by companies, you know, especially in this time of offices and companies thinking about, are we going to ask employees to come back into the office? I got asked the question, um, what story do we tell to bring employees back into the office? And I said, you don't. Like the moment you start trying to dress up something with a story about how amazing something's going to be is the moment you're going to lose people. 
So you always want to treat people like adults and just communicate when there's updates, when there's decisions, policies, stuff like that. Just communicate it. Don't try to dress it in a story and make it be better than it is because people will detect that as insincere. And the second thing is you want to be transparent. You want to share what you know and don't know and why you're telling the story. If it feels like you're being manipulated, you're going to lose your audience and, and you're not getting them back. Yeah, I don't understand why anybody would want to craft a story to tell people, listen, it's our office, you're the employee, this is what we require. I, I'm sure that there are ways to do it that are a little bit rougher than what I just said, but still, it's your company, you have to, it's your company culture, which leads me to my next question is how can you use stories to shape company culture, especially if it's since COVID changed a lot. Yeah, you already are. The stories that people tell are demonstrating what's being reinforced. So when you are sharing stories about the great leader or team, when you're giving recognition, when you are celebrating promotions, like you are showing what's valued in the organization. When um, a leader speaks up because someone makes an off-color comment in a team meeting, and they say, no, we're not going to do that. You are discouraging that behavior. And so your culture becomes the, the summation of these moments that are encouraged or discouraged. And being really thoughtful about these stories that you're telling about what is it that we value? And I don't mean the company values, but like, what do we want our employees to experience each day? Tell those stories. What are our best leaders and teams doing? Those are the stories we want to know. What are the mistakes people have experienced? Because if you can create an environment where it's okay to share those stories and learn from them, you're going to increase trust in the organization and not make people afraid to bring mistakes forward. And so it's really sitting down and thinking about what is it that we want people to experience? And let's start making sure we're telling these different types of stories that are um, demonstrating what we value and encouraging people to contribute their own. Perfect. And on the same topic, how do we create connections in hybrid, you know, whether they're working from home part of the time and coming into the office part of the time or in in-person <laughs> settings? I mean, things have changed a lot. The hardest thing about hybrid is that you lose the few minutes before and after a meeting happened in a room where people walk in and they have small talk about their weekend or they maybe talk about where they're going to lunch and all of those things reinforced connection. When you're hybrid, people are often back to back for many hours. And there's a sense of urgency of we just have the few minutes here because nobody's lingering in the room after. And that then puts the pressure to jump into an agenda and dive in and start moving into logistics and operations. And you're missing the opportunity for connection. It is just as important to have time to connect to share some of these stories. If you create the habit of maybe celebrating, what is something we can celebrate this week, this biweekly, you know, whatever the meeting cadence is, um, let's talk about mistakes that we've made. Let's have sharing. And I don't mean forced sharing because no one likes that, but where you're asking people to share different things. Um, these moments where you are telling these stories are going to create a neurological shift. They're going to build empathy across the team members and they're going to create a big impact. The tendency is to pack the agenda with 
operations and details, but it is just as important to build in time to make sure you are having those conversations that are going to forge the connection. And they can be as silly or as unimportant as, hey, my dog had 10 puppies. Who wants one? Yep. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation all by itself. Indeed. It's a puppy, but they're going to take them. You know, they are. Everybody loves puppies. So what is it that you're seeing right now that we've come out of COVID? Now there's talk that there's going to be another one, and I'm not going to give you my opinion about that. You probably tell. But what are you seeing in your world where storytelling is so, so important that people could probably benefit really massively by sitting up and paying attention and saying, oh, you know, like Stuckey's, you know, we've got this wonderful story. It's an 80 year history. Let's not let it die. What are you seeing that's important? I feel like this is always important. It's always important to be thinking about the stories that you're telling. And sometimes they're of the moment because if you go back a few years and people are starting to work in different places and, and have shifts in where children and schooling are happening, all of that, there's different stories that are needed there to create stability and help people figure out the path forward. Um, now it is probably laying out stories of who are we as a team, as an organization, where are we going? What's your role in that? How do we help as people have gone through their own personal reflection of what they want in work and life? How do we help connect people to what can be meaningful for them and, and help them see um, what is available to them in their career? You know, the role of the leader at this point, uh, empathy is a key skill and stories can help you get there. Very much. Listen, we've got about five more minutes and I really want you to share with the audience why you wrote this book and what's going on with it. I know it's about to be published. A book will land here on my desk soon and I can't wait, but let's talk about the book. I mean, it's been a journey for you. I wrote it because I wanted to help people be great storytellers. I wanted them to realize this is an accessible skill. And if you're an engineer that thinks logically and feels that this communication stuff is a soft skill, I want you to see some of the things that are going to be happening in the brain and realize, no, this is important for me. Or if you're a creative person, I want you to feel more comfortable leaning into how to tell stories and and bring them forward more. You know, the more we automate with AI and the way that we leverage in technology, the more we need to be able to connect individually and, and using stories is such an important way to do that. Sorry, I was muting. I was had I was having my own coffee fit. So how long did it take you to get this down on paper? Because you've been working on this for a while, haven't you? The writing went pretty quickly. It was about six months. Um, publishing is incredibly slow. So it's been um, about two years. It's been a, done for a year. And so the the publishing process has to work its process. Where can people find the book? It is available everywhere books are sold. If you love Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever your, your preferred retailer is, it's there. You can also find it on my website, which is my name, K-A-R-E-N-E-B-E-R.com. And there's a book page in there. Is there going to be an audible version? There is audible ebook and hard copy. If you are pre-ordering it before October 3rd, I have some giveaways where you can 
um, get a bonus jumpstart your storytelling email course, which there's information on my website and enter a drawing for a coaching conversation. There's discussion guides. If you have a group of people that want to read it together, you can download that from the website. There's, we aim to please, there's something for everyone. I seriously, I'm not blowing any kind of smoke. I cannot wait to read this book. Um, so it's, and I saw that the other day it's available on Amazon. So is there anything that you want the audience to know before I let you go, Karen? I just encourage people to tell stories. It can feel vulnerable and uh, uncomfortable, but on the other side of the story is this incredible reward and response that you get. And so don't wait for the perfect story. Take your stories and make them perfect. Exactly. And you know what I did not ask you? What is your personal story? That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> We're not going to have time for that today. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> so, okay. Well, you do have to come back after the book is published. I love Listen, that. Thank you so much for being here. And I really am looking forward to reading the book and sharing it with my podcast people. Thank you for it's having so, me. Oh, my pleasure. It's so much of what you're talking about here right now. But people want to get their voices heard and podcasting is marketing 101 as far as I'm concerned. It sure is. Yeah. But so many people just say, I don't know. And you mentioned it. I don't know where to go. I don't know where to start. <gasps> and they start hyperventilating. Well, I think this book will help you get past the hyperventilating part and, and help you to get your voice heard. So Karen, thank you so much. And before everybody, before I say goodbye, hang on. Before we wrap up today's episode... If you have enjoyed the episode with Karen, go find her, KarenEber.com. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And leave us a review. Go to Apple, leave us a review and a rating on iTunes and really do connect with her. And your feedback helps us improve and reach more people on their own success journeys. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button, leave a review, and share your partner in success radio with your friends and your colleagues. And thank you for tuning in. And we will catch you on the next one. Karen, thank you. And I wish you massive sales on your book launch. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab 